thanks for everyone coming out and this beautiful evening. This is very unusual weather for, in fact, I was walking to a party last night and uh, I was commenting on how much I loved the weather and someone else was lamenting on, oh, but this means summer is going. I was like, really? You, you don't want, you want the heat and humidity to stay around? That is weird. Um, Oh, it's weird. Um, so we are continuing in our, our mini-series, um, Your Biblical Literacy. Um, what am I doing now? Moving over so you can see my screen. They really should just, they should, yeah, they should uh, have someone else do all this. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little slow on the uptake. Um, luckily, we were able to get some good team members early on in the church, so we still are, we're still our church. Um, we're continuing this mini-series. Anything else? I got it all right? Okay. Um, what does it mean to, to live as a creative minority? And we're using um, the book of Daniel as our guide. Um, Daniel's kind of this odd book that we don't actually talk about that often because Daniel's an odd book. I mean, other than the things, if you grew up in church or synagogue, you might have learned like a um, story about Daniel in the lion's den or maybe Daniel in the fiery furnace. But other than that, our Daniel knowledge is pretty limited. Um, and so we're, gonna, we're, we're looking at this idea of what does it mean to, to live as exiles? Or to be to say it another way, like exiles are essentially people who live uh, live in a context where the way that they live their life seems odd or foolish to everyone around them. Um, and, and so, what does it mean to live at, as a creative minority in the context of exile? And I think Daniel's a really good guide because Daniel's like a 20-year-old uh, young person who's carted off to the capital city of a foreign land. Um, and has to decide, like, how does he both become part of the culture, um, but how does he also remain faithful to God? And I think that's a really kind of key conversation, because whether you realize it or not, being here at 5 p.m. on a Sunday evening um, to many of your friends and coworkers and people who live in the city, like, that's really odd, right? That's like you have friends right at this moment who are downing bottomless mimosas, and they don't understand your choice to come and sing songs and listen to some guy get up and prattle on for 40 minutes and then come and take of, a, of what is a delicious loaf of bread and, and wine, right? There's something that, that makes us unique or that sets us apart. And what, why Daniel is so fascinating is because Daniel doesn't uh, full-on embrace the surrounding culture. But yet, Daniel also doesn't run away and hide. Daniel, um, Daniel finds this really unique midpoint. And so, as we just, uh, Daniel, we said, shows us what it means to live faithfully um, where God has planted him. And so, uh, we are, we're defining a creative minority this way, using a quote by John Tyson that says this, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships who live in a challenging and complex cultural situation who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus and seeking the renewal of all things. And what we find is that, that God gives Daniel incredible favor. By the time the story is done, he has become one of the most powerful people in all the empire. But yet, in spite of Daniel's power, Daniel also remains faithful to God throughout the story. And, and the question that is rumbling behind the entire book of Daniel is this. How do you live and thrive in a world with competing values and remain faithful to your calling as a follower? Of, struck by how much overlap there is between Daniel's story and our own story. 
But before exploring Daniel's story again, I want to give us just a bit of backdrop um, of the what's kind of how they got, how Daniel ends up in a foreign land. So Israel, God's people, um, as it's told in the Hebrew scriptures, um, are called to be God's covenant people. God makes a covenant to be their God, and they make a covenant to live in a particular way. This is what the Ten Commandments are all about, right? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, um, and he is given these Ten Commands, and essentially the commands are split into two. On the first five commandments are kind of our relationship with God. The second five commandments are our relationship with people, which is a thread, right? Our relationship with God and with others is the thread all throughout the Hebrew Scripture that then Jesus then picks up again in the New Testament, which is then carried into Paul in the early church. But, but this idea of, of relationship with God and man goes all the way back, like when you're reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these really awkward books that talk about don't touch a dead, dead carcass, which most of us are like, okay, that command I'm on board with. Um, in the midst of these really weird texts, there are also texts that say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Is this thread that pulls all the, the scriptures together. And so they were set apart to be a particular type of people. But the problem is, and the reason that they end up in exile is because they were promised the land if they would live in a particular way, but they always had a tendency to, miss, to mess things up and to miss the point. And there were two sins that seemed to always kind of trap them. The first sin, um, the first sin was that they, part of their calling was that they were to, be ju to live justly and to act with compassion, right? Love justice and mercy and walk humbly with your God. This is all throughout the Hebrew scripture. So Isaiah 58 essentially says, if we were to rewrite it today, I do not love your worship songs, right? I don't care how great the music is, right? Your hill song, however great your hill song game is, that's not what I'm looking for. That's fine. What I'm looking for is that you act justly, that you care for the least of these, that those who are in your community who are the most marginalized are cared for, and they tended to miss this point over and over and over again. The second thing is, is the sin, the second primary sin that we find all throughout the Hebrew scriptures is the sin of idolatry, right? Thou shalt have, as the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt have no other gods before you. You can tell I memorized that from the King James Version. Um, so thou shalt have no other gods before you. And and the idea is, idolatry is simply this. You give something else in your life primacy over God, right? Whatever that might be. Is it your job or a, a career or relationship or your car or ice cream? Whatever that thing is that, like, you give primacy, the most important thing in your life, that then becomes an idol, and your life becomes guided to keeping that thing, right? Whether it's power or whatever. And so this is the sin that leads Israel to exile. And, and, and the part of the story of Israel is that they are going to be the people of the land, right? They're going to have a land to call their own, which interestingly, this land uh, still is so key in our own geopolitical situation today, like the same exact plot of land. And, and this, the, the idea was that you were going to be a people of a land. So here they are, they're wandering nomads in the desert. This crazy, some crazy people and maybe a crazy being in the sky seem to promise them that if they covenant and live in a particular way, that they will have their own land, a place to call their own and build their own city someday. And now, and then finally, the, the, the story kind of goes that they end up with their own land and they become a fairly prominent nation, but because of their idolatry and because of the fact that they don't 
act justly towards their neighbors, they, not, they no longer have the land. The land has been ripped from them, and they have been carted off into exile into Babylon. And that's how we end up with Daniel, who is a very bright young man, who's one of the best and the brightest in Israel. That's how we end up with him hanging out in Babylon, trying to figure out, what is thy next step? What, how, do I live as both a, how do I live as both a follower of God and also live in this new place that God has placed me? And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jan- Daniel chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. We're going to jump back just slightly. And we read this. It said, The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, and to Daniel he gave the name Belshazzar. So, they, and there's actually a whole list of other names there, but I struggled enough with Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Um, they were given new names, and they were given new clothes, and they were given a new diet. And, and for us, being given a new name right, is not that big a deal. So let's, for example, let's say Russia, you know, they, they finally bring us to our knees, right? It turns out everything works that they're trying to do, and they take us over, and they make, you know, they change my name to Vladimir. Right? That, I mean, it's not that big a deal. Or maybe they just, maybe we have some oppressor someday that comes in and decides to name us after trees. You know, I become cedar, right? That's, I mean, that's really not that big a deal. But in, but in this context, names were identity statements. They were prophetic they told you both about the individual. So Daniel means God is my judge. Right? So when Daniel's parents name him, they are saying something about him, that he is someone who will live under the authority of God. They say something not only about the individual, but they also say something about the God that you worship. And that name is stripped away from him. And instead of making, giving him a name like Cedar or Vladimir, they name him Belshazzar, I really cannot pronounce that name. They name him that B word, and, um, which means, not that one. Um, I can't believe your minds went there. <laughs> they name him this name, and it means the treasure of Bel, or the treasure of the Babylonian God. Right? So is, is he no longer in the authority of God? Right? By giving him a new name, they're also trying to give him a new identity, and their future and their past is stripped from them. And the empire was intent, was intent not only on making them good, um, good members of Babylonian society or good um, cogs in the wheel, but they want to make them good Babylonians. They want to strip their identity from them. And so in their previous life, everything was devoted to Yahweh, but now they are living in a foreign capital city and they are pressured to become good Babylonians and the hope is that they assimilate. And so Daniel is wrestling with this question of how do I thrive in this world? How do I not just sit here and get nothing done? How do I thrive and yet remain faithful to the calling? And Daniel, like I said, doesn't shrink into the shadows, but instead he finds incredible faith in the empire. And so the question he has, to, he has to ask himself is a question that some of you are wrestling with as well. And, and I almost hesitate to use this word, but, but most of us are, are asking a question something like this, or many of you are. How do I obtain success without being tainted by it? I mean, we can define success in a million different ways, right? How do I attain, attain fulfillment in your job or whatever? How do I obtain fulfillment or success without being tainted by it? How do we compete or how do we work in our city without, being com- without becoming consumed by our city? 
How do we gain success in a world of capitalism and politics and image and consumerism and power and ambition? How do we compete or flow in that stream? Because this is a stream you're flowing in. I mean, unless you are working at a monastery or something, and maybe even then, right, it's to make the best beer ever, right? Whatever you're thinking, like you are always in the stream that has the ability or there's always the, a calling, something trying to seduce us and pull us another way. And for many of us, I'm afraid that we become way too consumed by the spaces that we inhabit, that there's nothing that makes us unique. The only thing that makes some of us unique is the fact that we go to church like once a month, or maybe if we're really doing well, we go twice a month. Right? That's the only thing that kind of makes us unique. But if anyone were to look at like you and someone who considered themselves secular and kind of stacked your lives and what you kind of how you practice and use your money and so forth and so on, they stacked it up side by side, it'd be like, I don't really, I, oh yeah, he does go to church once a month. So there, that, that's the major difference. And so I want to talk, look, take a glimpse into how Daniel handles this tension between finding favor in the empire and becoming an influencer in the empire while at the same time re staying true to his calling. So a couple weeks ago, we explored how King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, or Nebi for short, carted off the best and the brightest to, to Babylon. So if you have your Bibles um, still open or on your app or whatever it is, however you uh, access scripture, it's also on the screen. We're going to jump to verse 5, back to verse 5, and then ahead to verse 8. We're jumping all over. But the king assigned these young men a daily allotment from his own food and from the royal wine. Um, Aspenes was to teach them for three years so that at the end of that time they could serve before the king. So this is a really intense fellowship program. So at the end of this three-year fellowship and the king's court, they are to work in the government. And then in verse 8 we read, but Daniel resolved, and that's a key word that kind of plays a role out through Daniel's life. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, it's important to remember Daniel is like late teens, early 20s. He's at a very young point in his age, but he at this moment resolves that there's going to be some place in his life that he draws a line. He's like, this is the way I'm going to create a distinction. This is the way I'm going to create a distinction. And I think what happens here is that we get a glimpse into how he resists the empire because part of the Babylonian immersion project was giving you amazing food and wine from the king's table. And this is good food and good wine. And it's a brilliant move on the empire's part. I, I, I always think if you are ever hoping someday to run your own empire, the book of Daniel is super helpful. Uh, and so uh, we imbibe culture because we imbibe culture through food and drink. The, the th if a friend, think about this, if a friend asks you, hey, I'm coming to DC this weekend, what should I do? Chances are your first thought is not the Washington Monument. Chances are that you will give them an entire list of restaurants to go and visit. And that's how you experience DC is through the food. Charlie and I are planning a trip to Europe. Um, we leave next Monday. Um, and I wish I could tell you we're gonna, we're gonna go to uh, we're going to be in France for a while, and then we're going to go to Rome. And I wish I could tell you that the thing that I'm most excited about 
is being in like the holy Vatican City, you know, this very spiritual place or maybe some great work of art or hearing an opera. No, I'm most excited about eating and drinking my way through Europe. Like I'm going to eat, drink copious amounts of wine and drink, eat really good food. And if I were to return, think about this, this would be insane, but if I were to turn from, from Europe and you were to say, so how was it? Did you like the food? You know, I didn't really try any of it. I just took kind bars. We just really ate kind bars. You're like, are you serious? You were in Paris and you ate kind bars? You weren't really in Paris. And what's interesting, and maybe you've done this before, but like after you visit someplace, let's say you go to Paris, and, and, and you've really like delved, 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 delved into the food culture, when you come back, all you want to do is sit at a, you want to be a good Parisian because it gets into your blood. Maybe that's not you. For Charles and I, the last time we went to Europe, um, we came back, um, we stayed in this uh, Catholic hostel, and um, every morning they had fresh butter, fresh yogurt, and fresh bread that was brought in from a local farm. I've never tasted butter like this before in my life. I haven't tasted it since. Never tasted bread this good um, since. And I've never tasted yogurt like this. It was phenomenal. And so when Charlie and I got back, we tried, and this is not a joke, we tried for a month or a month and a half to recreate that experience. We traveled all over DC trying to find little shops, little European stores, anything that we could find where we hoped to be able to recreate the food that we had, which was just table food, right? It wasn't even anything fancy. Like, it was what they put out free in the morning for you to eat, but it was the best meal of our lives. We wanted to live that life. There is something that is seductive about, cult about culture sometimes seduce us through food. It's soft influence. It's subtle, but it's powerful. And so this is why I think it's really interesting that the thing where Daniel draws the line is he resolves not to eat the food. Now, if you're worried, this is not a sermon on how you should no longer eat or drink the food in Washington, D.C., just to, just to clear that up. You're like, I've been to some weird churches. This is the first time I've ever heard a sermon against food and drink. But, but I do think it's interesting the way that Daniel chooses this line, and commentators disagree, right? Like the question is, why does Daniel draw this line? And some commentators would say, well, it's because the food was offered to idols. The wine and the meat was offered to idols. But the chances are, the vegan diet he ends up asking for most likely had also been offered to idols. And then other people would say, well, maybe it was because it wasn't kosher. But wine, the wine would have been fine. Anyway, it's, it's getting a little too into the weeds. So, like, what, like, there's no, there's no, like, reason that jumps out at you of why he would have resisted. Other than for Daniel personally, this felt like the line that he needed to draw, because he begins to speak the language, he wears the clothes of the empire, he ends up working his own life, and so that he did not become seduced by the world that he was living in, to have something that reminded himself that he was distinct and that he was different from those around him. The point for Daniel is, he said, is that if he takes the food, he knew that if he took the food, it would be over. In the same way, I was traveling for a while um, with uh, an old boss, and he w the whole trip was paid for by the publishing company. And so we would have a black car waiting for us at the airport, and we ate the best food and wine, and we flew. We got to like go to the exclusive line in the airport, and at the, like we, it was like a two-week trip, and then it was all the fun was over. Uh, and at the end of the two weeks, he turned to me and it's like, "You could really get used to this life." And I was like, "I really could. Right? I could get you like." 
Is it bad, any of the things I did? No, but if I kept down that path, I would want more and more and more of it. And Daniel knows that there is a line that he cannot cross if he is going to remain faithful to God. So what does he do? He decides to become a vegan, and all the vegans in the room go, amen. Um, and we have to remember, this is he decides to become a vegan back before you have all the fancy protein ways you get protein these days. And so there wasn't, it was just, it was veggies and water. And so we read, um, now God has, had caused the officials to show compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of the Lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men? The king would then have my head because of you. He's like, I'm supposed to be whining and dining you and winning you over. And if you come in looking like you're from Portland or something, the king is not going to be happy. You are the propaganda machine. We want everyone else to look at you and say, wow, it pays to be a good Babylonian. But the, but the chief official says, okay. So Daniel says, look, can I just have a test, just 10 days? So we pick up in verse 12. Please test your servant for 10 days and give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our, our appearance with the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. So the chief official is like, okay, we're gonna do a controlled test. 10 days and only 10 days. Verse 15. Um, at the end of the 10 days, though, they looked better and healthier and more nourished than any of the young men who ate. This is, where, this is, I think this is just kind of a funny part of the story. So the guard took away the choice food and wine that the other men were given to drink, the food and wine that they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. So you can just imagine, like, you do not have this cultural conviction. You are not like Daniel. Wine and good food is not the thing that's going to seduce you. You are like, finally, I'm going to eat and drink well. And then there's like this overly self-righteous guy named Daniel who's like, no, that's okay. We're just veggies and water are fine. And then everyone gets stuck with it. It's like the guy I was in, in uh, undergrad. Uh, there was just one class I was kind of slacking in. And because I knew that the professor, as long as he didn't ask for our assignment, we didn't get graded. We didn't have to turn it in. He was really ADD. He never remembered the assignment, except, except there was always one guy in the front row. Hey, prof, hey, prof, did you forget to take up the assignments this week? Right, that's Daniel, right? He's the guy in the front row that everyone else is throwing things at or whatever you do. Um, anyway, verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds and of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into the service, so at the end of three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel and his friends. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found and the enchanters and his whole kingdom. There was something special about Daniel, and because of this, because of his knowledge and his wisdom that God had given him, he becomes a prominent member of the empire. Next week, um, Beck, uh, Becky is going to preach, uh, continue the series, and talking about how we engage in our city. Right? There's all, you know, in a city that has so many challenges, how, how are we a creative minority in the midst of our city? And um, one of the phrases that, uh, that we just were talking about was the idea, there's this book that talks about what does it mean to be a philosopher of your city, right? to have wisdom for your city. And God gives Daniel wisdom for the empire, which is really interesting. So here's this guy who's been carted off to a foreign land that is not his home. 
and he is in fact resisting it, but God gives him wisdom to share with the empire. And the other thing I find interesting about this story is that in Daniel 1, the stakes are pretty low. Right? The worst thing that happens to him is he just becomes a bit weaker and loses a bit of muscle mass. But in Daniel 3 and 6, what ends, we find much more disturbing stories. Right? The one, Daniel, there's a story about Daniel and the, the furnace, and it's so hot that the men who throw them in are consumed. That's a dangerous story. But Daniel 1 doesn't seem, at first glance, that dangerous. But what Daniel knew is that, the, is that subtle intoxication the, the seduction of the food and wine for him was actually way more dangerous than the furnace or the lions. And I think there's a wisdom in this um, because for so many of us as residents of D.C., there is a subtle intoxication to our city. And, and, and it, it, it woos us in a way that we don't even realize. There's a, there's a quote, a pastor I follow in San Francisco read, a, he, he stumbled across an old book written in the 1950s. So this is San Fran before what we know San Fran as being today, right? And there's no Silicon Valley. Um, this is before Haight-Ashbury and all the, the, the rev, uh, summer of love. Um, and in 1950s, he writes this about San Francisco. And I thought, it's really, it's really applicable even to us. He says, the church has not been arranged on the side of the gospel against its environment. But too often, it has been quietly absorbed by its environment. Christianity, or Christians, particularly certain Christians, have a tendency to get in a tizzy about whatever culture war that is going on. But that's not the real danger. Right? That danger is slowly drifting away, slowly drifting away from our calling and our purpose, and it's subtle. We don't, it doesn't happen in an instant. It happens over time. I used the example a couple weeks ago when I preached about, like, my wife and I, when we'd go out to eat. You know, we started out, you know, Chipotle seemed really expensive and extravagant. And then after, you know, five years in D.C., we're dropping ridiculous amounts of money on a meal. And then we turn to each other and say, oh, that wasn't such a bad deal. Like, that was pretty cheap. Right? Or your values shift. I mean, think about this. I mean, think about this. Um, if you moved to D.C. recently, you know, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, think about how your relationship with your money has changed. I guarantee you, like, if some of you sit down and, like, think about how you spend your money, how you steward your money now as opposed to when you moved here, you have a completely different relationship with it. And all these shifts and changes are not bad. Right? That isn't even really the point of, of these, these shifts and changes. It's not that everything that's happened is a bad thing. It is just we often get caught up within the ebb and flow of a culture or of a city or of a people we're around that we don't even realize it. Or, or this, and this is gonna sound a bit, a bit old school and a bit judgy, but like think about how many drinks, how, your relationship to alcohol before you moved to DC. And now, I mean, it, it, the number of drinks that you consume, it just, it seems normal. I mean, when, we, when my wife and I moved here to DC, we knew nothing about alcohol because we came from a very kind of conservative college and a conservative seminary and it was dry and no one drank or if you did you hid it in your, in your I don't know your backpack um, <laughs> we used to have guys in we used to have guys in chapel who would uh, bring Sonic anyone know Sonic and they would like get a slushy from Sonic and then they would dump like vodka in it and that's how we'd consume alcohol which is really healthy right really push it down under the surface but we didn't know anything about 
about alcohol. And, and then we moved to the city and we realized that everything is centered around alcohol. And we felt like fools when we'd get invited to a wine tasting and we are, this is not, this is not a joke, we are picking two buck chuck as the most fine wine at the dinner, right? It's sweet, we thought this is good. They did a blind tasting and we said, that one, that's the most expensive. And they're like, that is Trader Joe's, two buck chuck. Or, or you'd go out to order you know, a, a drink, a beer or whatever, and we just had no idea. And we felt like we didn't fit, but we wanted to get caught up with everyone else. And then before long, our relationship to how much we're in unhealthy situations, right? This is not like a moral talk about how the Bible doesn't want you to drink alcohol. This is about how it's not good for your health or for your waistline, but it ends up shifting. You don't even realize it. Or, and this is my grandfather, God rest his soul, would be very proud of this sermon because I am preaching against drinking and against the things we watch. I mean, this is old school. Um, <laughs> but, but think about this. The things you would watch five years ago, right? Some of you are watching your clock right now thinking, there is a show I need to get home for tonight that is on HBO, and I hope he hurries up. Um, if you had watched that five years ago, you would say, oh, boy, that, there, it's, it objectifies women. I can't believe that's on, you know, that's on TV. And now you're like, but the storytelling, and everyone is talking about it on Twitter or whatever. And this is not, this is not, saying you shouldn't watch that. It's saying, it's, it's just pointing out the way that we shift what we, what we kind of consume. We get sucked in. It erodes us. Now, like I said, this is not some judgmental sermon on drinking movies or not watching HBO. It's a sermon on how things ebb and flow and shift without us even realizing it. It's about where our boundaries were and where they are now and the subtle erosion. And my guess is, and I don't know what it is for you, but there is a chunk of you um, who are living ways now that you would have never imagined yourself living. And, and there is a lack of joy, and a lack of peace, and a lack of happiness with where you're at at this moment. And some of you, I think, you have drifted. You're not where you want to be. The things that you are giving ultimate importance in your life at this moment are not the things that you want to have ultimate importance. There's a book um, uh, by a brother Lawrence called Practicing the Presence of God. And, um, and, and he, he, is, he, he devotes his life as a monk to cultivating the awareness of God. And he, there's this quote, he says, the way to practice the presence of God is by renouncing once and for all whatever does not lead to God. And so as you're like wrestling through these, I don't have five points. I don't have five things for you to cut out of your life. Because for each person in this room, there are different things that need to be your line. But, but maybe this question helps you, right? What are the things in your life that don't lead you to God? Does it lead you to God? No? Then renounce it. Renounce everything that leads you away from the peace and the joy of God. Because the thing is, this, this, this shift is subtle. It's insidious because it shapes us over time. Um, there's, a, there's a word I was thinking about. I was, really, I was trying to think about what's, it, what's this look like in D.C. And back in seminary, I learned this ridiculous big word called real politique. Um, and basically, it just, it, real politique is, is the idea of how the world, the world is, go you, you govern by practical realities as opposed to like ideology or morality in the most simple way to explain it. And, and some of us are, are, are inhabiting a space where we're like, yeah, that's really not the right, right way to, to 
conduct our career or whatever it might be, but you gotta understand, preach, that's just the way the world works. And it's really easy for you as a, you know, as a pastor, but if you were in my job or you were in my position, you need to understand that's just how things are. That's how people get ahead. But what we see in Daniel is that he remains faithful and yet still has favor in the empire. And Daniel becomes the most powerful, one of the most powerful members of the empire, but still remains faithful to his God. He said, there are certain things I will resolve in my heart. There are certain things I will not do because they keep my heart from shifting. There's, a, there's an old school preacher, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You may have read it in lit class. Um, but when he was 20 years old, he wrote these words. And this is in like 1730 or 17-something or other. So he says, being aware that I'm unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him. We should use that word more often. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Then he says, frequently I hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. And then he says, resolve shall wish I had done supposing I live to an old age. So when he's young, he's 20 years old, he's making decisions about his life that he wants to carry throughout the rest of his life. Because the choices that we make now in young, are, for many of us in our youth, or as we're starting careers or whatever it might be, or mid-career, the choices that you make sh can shape the rest of your life. And so he goes through these 70, these 70 things. So I might say something like, resolved, I will look ahead to when I'm 80 years old. What kind of man or woman do I want to be? Or we might say, resolved, I'm going to start plotting a course right now to become that person now. Resolved, I'm not going to let my career or managing my family or my schedule or this crazy city or my social media profile to overwhelm the, the path, me following the path of Jesus. Or maybe we say, resolved, I'm going to do that now. I'm going to start living and plotting my life in this way now. And Jonathan Edwards, like Daniel, they resolve at a young age that they're going to draw a line, that they're going to live in a particular way in order to protect themselves from the subtle intoxication of the world they're in. And for some of us, we need to do the same thing. We need to make a choice. We need to do an evaluation of your life, right? Go home, take five, ten minutes, and say, heavy word, or the things we need to renounce? Is there, are there things that, practices that I am doing, the way that I'm spending my money, the way that I'm stewarding my body, the way that I'm, you know, whatever that thing might be that is leading me away from God, what are the things that I need to renounce? And then on the flip side, for some of you, maybe there's nothing you need to renounce, but there are things that you need to resolve. Some of you need to put practices in your life. Maybe it's a spiritual discipline or reading the divine hours or a daily prayer or meditation or whatever it might be, a midweek service. You need to put some practices, resolve to have some practices, to draw some lines in your life, something to help keep you from allowing things to begin to shift. And what we see in Daniel is that Daniel raises the stakes. He says, look, I am trusting God that when this 10 days is over, I will be as healthy or healthier than everyone else. Like He's like, I am putting it on the line. God has to show up. 
And for some of us, we need to do the same thing. Like, we play it too safe. What would it look like if the things that you resolved can only be done if God shows up? And I think this is what it takes for us to be faithful to Christ in our city. It'll take renouncing certain things, and it'll take resolving other things. But, but this isn't only a message for you. It's easy to preach at you. Like, it's actually fun, right? You get to tell everyone else what to do. But it's also a message not only for me as your pastor, but this is a message for our church. Right? We are four years in as, a, as the table church. And, and there are things that we need um, to repent of and resolve of as a church. There are ways that we've allowed ourselves to drift away from calling people to Jesus and the centrality of Christ. We've let things slide. We didn't hold one another accountable. Or, and this is for me is like my, this is the thing I struggle with most. We, we do things in such a way, we do church in such a way that it, it would go fine if God doesn't show up, right? Like, we don't, we are not putting it on the line. If God doesn't show up, we're not doomed. Everything's gonna go just fine. And I, I'm, I love systems and structures and things that run well, and I don't wanna move away from that. But we need to take some bold actions, some bold steps, that if God doesn't show up, if God doesn't have our back, we're never going to accomplish it. And so over the next few months, you will begin to see some shifts we're going to ask some leaders to begin stepping up. We're going to begin focusing more as a community on children. It's less applicable to this location, but we as a church have had an exploding kids ministry. On any given Sunday, we have 20 to 25 kids who are part of our kids ministry. And, and, and one of the things that God has really been speaking to us is how are we stewarding those lives that God has entrusted us with and pointing them towards Jesus at this young age? I keep an app on my phone called Parent Q. Um, and I enter my daughter Eloise's age, birthday, into the app, and then it tells me, it gives me a countdown of how many weeks till she goes off to college. All right, that talk about a sobering number. And someone asked me, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and my response was, well, I have two options. The one is I can pretend it's that clock isn't there, or I can acknowledge it and constantly ask myself, how am I stewarding those, that time I have with her. So how as a church are we stewarding the time that we have with the kids that God has entrusted us with? And I'm not just talking like children's workers are off doing kids stuff, but how do we as a community come around children in our community and shepherd and guide them and walk with them? That's also gonna mean for some of you stepping up and becoming a part of what we're gonna try to begin to do in the kids program. And you'll hear more about this um, in the fall. Um, and we're talking about some things like potentially doing a second service in Columbia Heights and all these things that, are, that we really believe that God is calling us to step out on. But before we do any of that, before we launch any of those initiatives, we are going to spend September. We're going to spend 21 days in September um, in prayer. And so that means that we're going to ask the church to join us uh, during those 21 days in prayer. We're going to ask you to fast something um, during that time. We're going to have a, every Saturday, we'll have a Saturday prayer meeting that we're going to ask you to be a part of and also to be praying every week because we don't want to go into whatever the next thing is that God has for our church with just being something we can pull off on our own. But we want to go into it as taking some risks and some challenges that if God doesn't show up, 
it's going to fall flat. Because we as a church realize that we exist for those who are not here yet. And we've been given an amazing calling and opportunity. We've all, we exist to call people to follow Jesus. I believe following Jesus is the most important decision people will ever make with their lives. And we've been called to follow, call people to follow Jesus and help them to grow in community and discover that thing that God created them to do, that thing, that unique thing that God created them to do, and then unleash them to do that. You have so many friends and coworkers and people around you who are sinking in this city, who have been so taken in by its subtle intoxication and that they've lost themselves. And we have a unique opportunity to begin to recenter ourselves on Christ and say, what does it mean to begin to call people to become followers of Jesus and to help them discover the reason that they were created? But we will only be able to live into this purpose if God shows up. And so I hope you'll join us in this season of prayer as we as a church begin to say, where are the ways that we have drifted and what is it that God is calling us to be and to do? But I also hope you'll take some time in your own life. Maybe if you're going on vacation, carve out a little bit of time to begin to ask yourself, what are the things in my life that I need to renounce, the things that are drawing me away from God? And, and the, the thing to remember is they they don't have to be like morally wrong things. They could be perfectly okay things, but for you, they lead you away from God. And then what are the things, the practices that you need to resolve, the things that you need to resolve that will lead you towards God? And I don't have like a list for you, but I hope you just take some time and evaluate your own life and begin asking God to show you the ways that you have drifted and to call you and to woo you to himself. Can we pray? God, I thank you for the story of Daniel. As I am preparing and as I'm reading, I feel a heavy call on my own life and where have I drifted? How have I drifted as a, as a father and as a pastor and as a husband? Where are those areas where I found myself slipping because, I become in, because I've been seduced by whatever that thing might be? And I pray that you just open each and rift where we have been drawn in by the subtle intoxication of our city or our job or power or ambition or whatever that thing might be. And may you point us and redirect us back to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>